This is a TSN original podcast. Just a quick note for listeners, this podcast includes some adult language and subject matter. This is not stuff that sports writers routinely wrote about. I don't know if there was something wrong with his brain. I don't know if it was the if it was drugs. I don't know if it had anything to do with concussion. He certainly had issues with rage management and poor judgment. But you know, some people are just have a really lousy nature. They're antisocial. You know, I never did a psychiatric profile of Durbano. I'm sure there's a lot of labels that you could put on him now. I just knew him as a reckless, angry person. And I don't care why he got that way. This is the fifth and final episode of Durbano. TSN's first long-form feature podcast about the complicated life and career of former NHLer Steve Durbano. That voice you heard off the top was Rosie DeManos, a reporter who we heard from in the first episode. She was right about the fact that there may be a number of reasons to explain why Steve acted the way he did, but the truth is more complex than I first imagined. I can tell you one thing. Steve Durbano's personality took shape during his formative years, long before he made it to the NHL. His father, Nick, was a typical hockey dad, always pushing his son to become a better player. Throughout his childhood and into his professional hockey career, Steve routinely found himself the target of Nick's passion or anger, depending on who you asked about it. Newspaper accounts from Steve's junior career often described his personality and his dad's, as volcanic. Former Montreal Canadian Steve Shutt played with Steve in the mid-1960s. The family dynamic, um, how would you describe that relationship between Steve and his father? Uh, Poison. And I think he did more to ruin Steve's career than anybody. He had a temper... Uh, and he just drove Steve, and when he drove him crazy, all the way through, they'd be fighting with each other. It was volatile. Let's let's put it that way. What it look like? Uh, it it's just like like Nick is a very uh, emotional guy, and uh, and he would just you know get on Steve, and and that's and Steve would just. Uh, he'd start getting frustrated, and he'd just take it out on whoever was around at that time. Did you ever intervene? Ever say, hey, calm down? No, no, no. Jeez, no. <laughs> you may remember from our earlier episodes, I spent some time with Nick. If you look back on that time of him, again, growing up from a young boy to getting to the NHL... If you could do it over again, is there anything different you'd do? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd make fighting a, a no-no. I mean, I would, I'd hammer him about, you know, not being part of that. Stick strictly to the hockey. I'd, I'd really lean down on my butt. Nick Durbano is now an 89-year-old man, born in the blue-collar city of Hamilton, Ontario, in 1930. He moved to Toronto at the age of 16, and not long after that, he entered the construction business 
building his first house at 25. Nick would go on to become a very successful real estate and construction executive. Steve's childhood home was located in a suburb of Toronto on a little street called Playdell Court. There, his house was flanked by the homes of two Leaf legends. Next door to me, Bob Pulford lived, and Jim Pappen lived across the street from me. And that a little community, and I developed that community. We had four NHL players living there at the same time. Jim Pappen won two cups with the Maple Leafs in the 60s. His wife, Karen, shared with me what it was like to have the Durbanos as their neighbors. They were typical Italian. Dream was a wonderful mother in terms of her boys. They were her everything. Nick was a driving kind of business guy. This attitude was not limited to work. Nick was an intense man. He owned the Woodbridge Junior B team that Steve was playing for, perhaps an attempt at pushing his exceptionally gifted son forward in his hockey career. But according to Steve Shutt and others, the way Nick tried motivating his son often had the opposite effect. Nick would go in the dressing room and him and Steve would be yelling and screaming at each other. And, you know, at that time, I think Steve was only 15 or 16 at the time. We hear a lot about hockey parents. It sounds like Nick's story. Oh, yeah. It fit the bill. Yeah, yeah, he fit fit the bill. For what it's worth, I asked Nick if he had ever gotten into a physical confrontation during this time period. Didn't he punch you at one point when he was younger? No. I thought I read that somewhere. No, never did. Like most fathers, Nick said he wanted the best for his children. It wasn't only Steve who had his dad's attention. His brother John was a good hockey player, too. I mean, that was my goal, to be become a National Hockey Leaguer. John could skate like the wind. Great skater. Unfortunately, his career would be cut short by a terrible on-ice injury. Somebody, I guess, went to lift a stick and ultimately uh, knocked his eye out. Steve Shutt was the first person to tell me this story. And to be clear... John didn't actually lose his eye, but the injury severely impacted his vision. The referee missed the call, and then Nick just went totally ballistic and waited for the referee to come out of the rink and then tried to run him over with his car. Run run the referee over? Yeah, with his car. Yeah, that's a a lot of common. (laughs) What it was, you know, I had my car parked in the side of the building. Nick was leaving the arena in a rush to get John to a nearby hospital. John got into the car, and I, when I turned the car around, and the referee had to be there, he was coming out the door when I was heading out to the hospital. I wasn't blaming the referee, that's, but, that, but that's the way they wrote it. Like they said, that I was trying to run the referee down. Teddy was drunk, and he doesn't even drink. Never has. But there was articles in there that said he was drunk. You know. And I never drank. The Durbanos were a stereotypical 1960s Canadian family. John and Nick told me that Saturday nights were reserved for watching hockey, and entire summers were spent together as a family. I was the big brother, <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, we had, we had a lot of fun as kids. We had a cottage that we used to go to every summer. And... But we, that was always our ambition to take the boys someplace. Having a cottage and uh, someplace to go in the summertime, that, was, that, that seemed to be the end thing. 
Like many Canadians, it was important for Nick to be able to take his family somewhere nice in the summertime. But as we have come to find out about Steve, just being in a positive environment was no guarantee that he would be free from adversity. John shared with me one of the first major hurdles that Steve would have to overcome. He was probably only around three years old, I think, four years old. And we were just playing outside. They were building a cottage next to us. And he was running, no shoes on. Of course, we never wore shoes. And there was a board there with a spike in it. And he stepped on it right through his foot. And whether it was coincidence or not, but that's when he got diagnosed as having uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And he literally didn't walk for a while. So he crawled. That's the only way you can get around. For months? Months, absolutely months. Maybe even a year. You didn't know if he'd he'd walk again? Doctor said he might never walk. But Steve would walk again. And less than a year later, he taught himself how to skate. We came to Florida for a week, and my mother-in-law was looking after John and Stephen, and she was staying at our house. So anyway, uh, and it's at Christmas times. Stephen come up the steps from the basement one with skates on. He had John's skates on. And my mother-in-law said, what are you, what are you doing? What are you, where are you going? I said, you got him going skating. She said, you can't skate. He goes, yes, I can. Even as a young boy, Steve was already showing signs of what he was to become. A showman and a daredevil personality traits that stayed with him throughout his life. From the mayhem he caused on the ice to his cocaine smuggling after his career. Steve had a flair for the dramatic and seemingly craved the attention that came along with the risky decisions he made. And he went out on the, the street, it was a dead end street and it flooded over and it was frozen. And he went over there and he, that's where he learned to skate. On the street in front of your house? And, he, and then he used to do it every day then. He'd want, you know, the next day, the afternoon, skate on, go out skating again. He would do, do it every day. And he learned to skate at three years of age on his own. <laughs> it didn't take long for Steve to transition from playing on iced over roads to being a star player and a tough guy in Junior B. Intimidation was a key part of his skill set, and it was the reason the teams looked at him as a potential first round draft pick. To give him the best opportunity, to achieve his goal of going pro, Steve needed to play for the famed Toronto Marlies, and his dad made sure that would happen. So Marlboro, they wanted him, and Jim Gregory said, you'll make the playoffs next year because give me Steven, and they give me five players for Steven. So when Steve was 14 years old, you traded him to the Marlies for yeah. five players? Yeah. How did he, how did, who told him that he was being traded? Did you, did you tell him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 well, he, he didn't mind. He, he kind of, well... Kind of, you know, wanted the idea of going playing Maple Leaf Gardens. You know that, you know Maple Leaf Gardens was a shrine at that, those days. It was only a few years later when Steve traded in his school books for a broom and started sweeping the floors at the rink he had been playing in. He was working at Maple Leaf Gardens, you know, during the day. You know, he worked on the crew there. That's Dale Talon. He is the current president of hockey operations and general manager of the Florida Panthers. Dale is one of Steve's many junior hockey teammates who would later join him in the NHL. Before that, though, they played together for that legendary hockey club. It's a special feeling to be a Toronto Marlboro. 
the Marlies for the for the evil empire. We played in Peterborough that Tony Featherstone and Derby were up in the crowd fighting, you know. Sparks were flying, the skates on, they were up the stairs. They were in the that. stands brawling with each other during a game. Yeah, yeah. Whatever we asked him to do, he, he did it. He was that kind of a guy, you know, he just, he protected his teammates. So That's played- what I remember. I really liked him. I genuinely liked him. I thought he was a good soul. I prepared a couple of words yeah. and things I'd like to say that I would like included, which basically says... This guy wasn't an evil monster. That's Charlie Shaw, a junior hockey teammate of Steve's. It was during his time with the Rough and Tumble Marlies that Steve became one of the most penalized players in the history of the OHA. At 17, Steve punched a police officer who interfered with his heckling of a timekeeper in St. Catharines, Ontario. What a mess. This is basically 10 hockey players and two timekeepers battling it out in a cage brawl, glassed in with no divider in between. The referees come flying over, trying to break something up. After the refs separated us, and we were single file headed towards the dressing room, and this timekeeper was going absolutely nuts, yelling at Steve. Steve turned around and spit right on his glasses. They weren't far apart. They went like this. And it, it's like he's got glasses on, and the one lens, he couldn't see through it. Like this greenie, I couldn't create such a thing. It was absolutely hilarious from where I was. We proceeded down the hallway, and then all of a sudden, this police officer arrived on the scene. And the officer kept pushing Steve on the chest, pushing him back. And I'm going, oh no, this is not good. And then all of a sudden, Steve swings a massive punch and comes down on the top of the cop and drills him back three or four feet. More police came, and Steve was taken to the police station. And after the game was all over and everyone showered up, the team bus went to the, the police station to pick Steve up and take him home. Every team had their guy, and Steven was the, the Toronto Marbles guy. He stood out. You knew that he was on the ice when he was on the ice because of his playing ability. But as time went on, like that goofiness, if you want to, got more and more. They didn't discourage him. In them days, they encouraged that type of behavior. And I used to tell him, Stephen, you got to quit the fighting the games, begin to change. And I guess it got to the point where he, he enjoyed the fighting. <laughs> so that was part of it. He liked fighting. Well, he, like he wouldn't walk away from it. He, he enjoyed participating in it. I thought I'd heard everything I needed to know about who Steve was as a person. But I found out that there was much more to his story. That's next, after the break. Did you know there's a new way to get TSN? TSN Direct lets you stream all your favorite live sports and so much more. And it's all in stunning HD. All you need is internet. What are you waiting for? Go to tsn.ca slash subscribe. Steve's response to any situation was rarely, if ever, measured. He had always passed the blame to someone, or something else, any time he was in trouble. Not to say that wasn't sometimes true. It was not in his personality to own up for anything that he had done. There was always an excuse for every action. In junior, 
He'd been pushed by the cops, so it wasn't his fault. He was just defending himself. As a hockey pro, he had to fight to cement his place in the league. With the cocaine, he first said that it was a practical joke, and then after he was convicted, he tried to change the narrative toward the rest of the NHL abusing drugs. The prostitutes? He just said he drove them. He couldn't control what people do when he isn't with them. Suffice to say, Steve was a deeply confusing individual. He was pushed towards violence at a young age to get ahead in life. Only a few years later, perhaps thanks to his many hockey injuries, he developed an addiction to drugs and alcohol. This compulsion shaped the way he lived the rest of his life. I'm not sure anyone can definitively say what drives a person to do anything, but it was during my conversation with John that he shared something with me that paints Steve's behavior in a new light. John and I talked on the phone briefly about this incident with Steve. With Steve. Can I ask you guys about this, the, the, the cottage? Was that, would that have been at Lake Simcoe, John? Yeah, and I'm not even sure my father even knows about it. What was that, John? That incident uh, when we were at that lodge. We were just, I mean, we were just young kids. You know, we had traveled somewhere. It was a friend of a f- friend of a friend that my father knew that we went to this lodge, and that, um, and this guy was a was a boy scout uh, leader or whatever was there was spending the summer there or whatever had a boat Steve went like I say went in the boat with them and the guy proceeded to to diddle him you know told me about it and well, he didn't tell me didn't tell me that that but he told me about the boat ride and, you know we should go to the boat ride and that kind of stuff and so I went in the boat ride he tried to do the same to me and I had you know, that was the end of that. Okay, I wasn't having nothing to do with that. I was just that much older than Steve to understand what was going on, but I was probably about 10 years old. He was, he was about seven. Steve would have been seven years old. And I, and I, and I can't remember the outcome, to be honest with you. I can't remember if I told my mother or I just, we ignored it. And this guy ended up leaving. That was kind of the end of that story. <laughs> so, Maybe because that's the way it was in those days? You didn't talk about things like that? Probably. You know, it was a different time back in the 50s. I mean, this was in the 50s. <laughs> you know, so... Different time. Fifty years later, Stephen never ever told him, never talked about it. Never ever, never ever talked about it. How do you feel hearing that? Well, it's, it's, uh, I'm disappointed. I mean, but you know, like, uh, but here's a you know, six or seven year old kid. What, you know, some, you know, I, I probably thought I would have probably gone out and tried to beat the shit out of the guy. You know, <laughs> and that's probably why I didn't say anything because I knew that's what would have happened. <laughs> Mm. I'm sorry to, I'm, but this is even you telling me this now is more than we talked about on the phone, John. Right. Sorry to hear about that. Well, you know, I mean, it, it never really affected me, you know, because I obviously I didn't let it go any farther than. But you were three years older than Steve. Right. Three years older, um, but 
you know, it was just, if it affected him later in life, and it may have, I don't know. You know, it was something we never discussed. Um, but so I don't know if he had any impact from it or not. It's fair to say there's a lot of evidence there that he was troubled by something. I wasn't equipped to process the information that Nick and John shared with me, so I searched out for someone who could help me unpack what this traumatic childhood could have meant for Steve. Hi, it's Rick. Rick, Theo Fleury. If you're a hockey fan, you probably already know that Theo Fleury was sexually abused by his junior hockey coach, Graham James. We're doing a podcast about Steve Durbano. I don't know if you remember him, but he played in the NHL through the 1970s. I began with Steve's hockey career and criminal past before I revealed what John had told me. Steve's older brother, for the first time ever, shared with their father, you know, when we were kids, we were at a camp and we Mm -hmm. were sexually abused by one of the counselors at the camp. I was waiting for you to tell me the trauma piece of the story. Yeah. Right. So, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual abuse. It could be any, any kind of experience that leaves you in emotional pain and suffering. Right. Mm -hmm. And the behavior, his behavior doesn't surprise me at all because that's where we go. Right. We end up, um, masking the emotional pain with all of these bizarre behaviors, right? Well, how hard must it have been for Steve at seven or eight grappling with whether he can tell anybody about that, about what happened to him? Well, therein lies the question, right? You know, um, I don't know exactly, you know, the details of it, but I'm sure he has PTSD. I'm sure that, you know, he had lots of anxiety, lots of depression attached to it. You know, like, um, you know, trauma, mental health, and addiction, they all live in the same house. But trauma happens first. The first thing that happens is trauma. And then, and then what happens is you, you start to develop, you know, anxiety and depression and panic and PTSD and all this stuff. So then how are we going to deal with this emotional pain? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life mm-hmm. and get involved in addictions until we can find tools that help us live day to day with this mental illness or emotional pain or whatever the hell you want to call it until we acquire tools that help us live one day at a time. Well, we're going to, we're going to screw up every once in a while. I'm trying to picture what it would have been like for Steve Durbano as a young boy in the early 1960s, you know, with so many, so much of his life ahead of him, so much opportunity ahead of him. You know, he would be a first round draft pick in the NHL. And then mm-hmm. he goes through this experience. And I'm just trying to get my head around what that would have meant to him. You know, knowing that. You're basically alone because you can't you can't tell anybody. You know that's a that's a big burden to carry. Yeah, and so the behavior matches the crime. Was Steve a good guy or a bad guy, or was he both? Two sides of the same coin. 
and depending on each flip, you may find yourself face to face with an entirely different person. What I think it really comes down to is the lens you use to look at him. To his friends and family, he was a kind and gentle teddy bear. To his opponents on the ice, he was a fearsome, unpredictable hooligan. To the various pro hockey clubs that employed him, he was a marketing tool and a good one at that. It may be strange to hear this in a TSN podcast, but to the media, maybe he was just an easy way to sell more newspapers. Does hearing about what happened to him when he was seven answer any questions for you? Maybe, like you say, maybe that was a, a, a burning image in his mind at all the time. Yeah, I think so. Yep. I would say that could be part of it, yep. Is that, am I overstating it, or is that fair, John? I think, again, it was a combination of a lot of things. That probably had something to do with it. The drugs had something to do with it. The alcohol had something to do with it. The 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 fame, the notoriety, the the role he played in the game. I mean, and, and again, I, something we never talked about, and we'll never know whether that was one of the driving factors or not. This story is reported and hosted by Rick Westhead. Senior producer for Debrano is David Crixt. Executive producer is Ken Bolden. The show was produced and edited by Sam Glisserman. Mixing and sound design by Sean Pattenden. Research, fact-checking, and locating guests for all interviews was done by Takia Singh and Emily Hanscamp. Our theme song was composed for us by Jonathan Gallant of Billy Talent. Show art and design by Vince Arnone and Eric Kirk. Website developed by Pete Stewart. Thanks to everyone who chose to share their stories about Steve with us. Nick and John Durbano, Lisa Ostrick, Chuck Arneson, Charlie Shaw, Theo Fleury, Ken Lindsman, Steve Shutt, Phil Roberto, Dale Talon, Karen Pappen, Rocco Moraglia, Kathy McKinnon, Dave Hansen, Dave Schultz, Gil Ajay, Bob Kravitz, and Rosie DeMano. Special thanks to Matt Cade, Darren York, Corwin McCallum, Daniel Zekchevsky, Brett Mitchell, and Bruce Massoff for all their help on this project. Archival audio courtesy of W5, CTV, CHCH, the NHL, and the WHA. For more bonus content, head to tsn.ca slash Durbano. There you can check out some vintage photos, a character list, and the entire credits for the show. Thanks for listening.